My name is Kim Mutcherson. I am the co-dean of Rutgers Law School in Camden, and this is The Power of Attorney. So I get to, in, I get to interview so many interesting people um, as a part of this podcast, and today is no different. Um, today, I get to talk to our alum, um, Roger Clark, not to be confused with our former professor, Roger Clark, um, about his eclectic career, um, his time as an adjunct with us um, at the law school, um, and just all, all manner of fun things. So thanks so much for being here, Roger. It's great to see you as always. Kim, thank you. It's a lot of fun to be here. Thanks for asking. Absolutely. Well, I, I do just want to say one thing uh, sure. before we get started. Uh, I, I don't have any problem uh, whatsoever uh, being confused with Roger S. Clark, <laughs> uh, uh, being confused with someone who has been nominated for Nobel Peace Prize is just fine uh, with me. <laughs> but but, but I, I can't claim to be that Roger Clark, yeah. although I've known Roger for, uh, well, I've known Roger since 1975. He taught me torch. He was one of my first professors at Rutgers Law School. I love that. Um um, especially because I don't think of Roger as a torts person, right? Because he's he's been a crim person for all the time that I've been um, at Rutgers. So it's funny for me to think about him teaching it. Uh, well, well I think after he taught torts to uh, my class, he uh, threw up his hands and said, never again. <laughs> Seems possible. Definitely. <laughs> um, so the way I always start this podcast is by asking my guests to share their origin story with us, you know, of, of all the things that you could have chosen to do with your life, you decided that you wanted to go to law school um, and become a lawyer. So can you can you take us through that journey a little bit? What made you decide that law was where you wanted to be? Um, you know, that's a, that's a wonderful question. Um, and it, it probably um, is a difficult answer, to, uh, a difficult question to truly um, answer um, because it uh compels anyone who's asked that question to really go deep and to understand their origins. And, and, you know, as I reflect back on it, um, I realized that uh, my original um, intent coming out of high school um, was to be a pilot uh, for the United States Air Force. Uh, my, my father uh, was a World War II um, pilot. Uh, ended up staying in the Air Force. He actually got out, but got recalled for Korea and then ended up staying. So I grew up um, on uh, Air Force bases uh, around the country and also overseas. I was around airplanes. Uh, I admired my father very much. And uh, so I wanted to follow in his footsteps. Uh, and I actually went to the Air Force Academy. Um, and uh, so I was at the Air Force Academy um, and uh as I was there, my eyes deteriorated. Um, and, uh, so I couldn't fly for the air force, uh, various, I, uh, eyes tend to cross when they get tired. Um, yeah, I have a color blindness as well. Uh, and I probably wasn't fit to be a, a career air force officer by temperament anyway. Uh, so, uh, so maybe my, uh, eye issue gave me an excuse. <laughs> so I transferred, uh, and went to, uh, uh, Florida State University to complete the last year and a half, uh, two years to complete my undergraduate education. And uh, I, I suppose in a certain way, I was probably um, drifting a little bit about what I wanted to do. Uh, but I think I was probably deceiving myself because uh, I think I probably knew what I wanted to do. Uh, but the direct trigger, once I recognized uh, the, the direct career path I wanted to take is that I took a business law class. Um, and I was impressed with uh, my, my professor, 
Um, and uh, I seriously began to think about going to law school at that point. Uh, but that's the superficial uh, story. I think much deeper. Uh, my uh, interest and love for the law comes from my mother. Uh, and, as I, and as I have thought about this, um, I realized that uh, she had dreams, I think, uh, for me to be a lawyer. Uh, and, uh, uh, and that was always in the back of my mind at some point. Uh, so, uh, when I was in my final uh, few months of uh, undergrad, uh, I decided and got serious about going to law school and, uh, I was attracted to Rutgers, uh, uh, Rutgers had a good reputation even then. Um, and, uh, I was a little bit of a, a wanderlust because, uh, as I mentioned, uh, we lived, uh, all over the country and also overseas, but I'd never lived in the Northeast. Um, so I was attracted to Rutgers for a couple of reasons. One, uh, because of its reputation and also because it was in the Northeast. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, to my surprise, I was accepted and, uh, I, uh, hopped in the car and, uh, and drew, uh, drove North, uh, from Florida, uh, to, uh, New Jersey. Wow. So as somebody who, you know, sometimes we talk to people who have lawyers and judges in their family and, um, you know, can, uh, have folks to talk to about what is that law school experience going to be like as somebody who didn't necessarily have access to that kind of information. What, what were you expecting when you got to law school and did, did law school live up to your expectations? Well, now I'm old enough to have remembered when this old movie Paper Chase came out. Yes. <laughs> uh, and, and, and it came out just, I think, a year or two before I applied to law school. Uh, so as I uh, drove into town, uh, I was expecting to see a Professor Kingsfield. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and we all had our Professor Kingsfields. Yeah, uh, so, so I was anticipating a um, intellectually challenging environment. Uh, I was anticipating the so- Socratic method. Um, and, uh, so I, uh, was expecting, uh, something that would push me. Um, and, and, and I wasn't disappointed. Um, and, uh, you know, as I said, I, I, I expected to get an excellent education, uh, when I came to Rutgers, but I think a certain part of me took it for granted. I, I didn't realize as a student, um, how spectacular my education, uh, was, you know, at, at the school. Um, you know, our, um, I don't mean to besmirch anybody, but I consider my professor Kingsfield to be my professor Kepner, uh, who taught civil procedure my, my first year. And we were fortunate that he only uh, called on you uh, one time, um, but you had to brief a case uh, when he called on you. Um, and my very first lesson uh, as a, a budding law student, uh, which I've always uh, held close ever since, was in the very first day of class in uh, Professor Kepner's uh, civil procedure class because there must have been 180 people mm-hmm. in the classroom. Uh, and Professor Kepner comes in, uh, striding up the uh, you know center aisle, uh, walks up to the dais, turns around without saying a word and opens up a notebook you know, on the podium and then takes his finger, puts it down and calls out a name, oh. which was not my name, <laughs> uh, which I'm glad. Anyway, it was someone in the far back, very back row, meekly said yes. And uh, Professor Kepner said, give us your brief on Neuer versus Neff, whatever it was. And uh, so the uh, students said, uh, we had an assignment for today. And, and uh, you know, this is all pre-internet, pre-everything. And, and uh, uh, we were shortly, it was after we learned how to write as a species, but it was before everything else. And so, so <laughs> and, he's, and so the students said, I didn't know we were going to have uh, 
an assignment. It was the first day of class. I thought this would be orientation session. And of course, that was what uh, Professor Kepner was uh, expecting. Um, and then he pointed out that the worst mistake that any lawyer can make is to make assumptions. He said, you would assume there was no assignment, uh, but the assignment has been out on the hallway uh, since uh, June 30. And it was there for anybody to read and see. Uh, so my very first lesson was as a lawyer, you don't make assumptions. You have to drill down and find out what the actual facts are. Now, I, after that, uh, the fear of God had been struck into me for that class. And I, uh, every, every day I completely briefed every class. It was, I put more time <laughs> into that class than any other in the first semester. He never called on me until finally, you know, the three or four days before exam, I, I was one of three or four people that had been called. Uh, and, and so I, I finally that's says, stressful. I, I, I said, I, I got to get ready for exams. And, and, <laughs> and so I went out uh, to the bookstore next door and, and bought a canned brief. I can make this, the statute of limitations is run on this now. So I read yes. it. But so I bought a canned brief. And sure enough, you know, you wash your car, it rains the next day. Yeah. So, so my very first canned brief, the next day I go in, he calls on me. And, and so I've got my canned brief stuck in a notebook. And uh, so we have to stand up and uh, he's on the dais and I'm just underneath him. I had to almost lean over backwards, uh, almost breaking my back to hide the fact that I had a canned brief. Anyway, I read the canned brief. He asked me one question, I think. It asked for either a yes or no answer. I think I said yes. He says, well, that's not correct. No is the right answer, but good analysis. <laughs> <laughs> and, there you go. and I got to sit down. <laughs> and then one of my very good friends, uh, we're still good friends even now, Chris Lease, uh, who has uh, practice with White and Williams as managing partner there until very recently, uh, turned around, who was right in front of me, looked at me. And I can't quite repeat exactly, exactly what he said, but you lucky I love everything about that, about that story. It's, oh. a, it's a life lesson and a, and a professional lesson, right? Don't, don't make assumptions. Um, it is a reminder. I think that this is, I, I say this to students all the time that, um, you know, people will remember you in law school. They'll remember, you know, when you get called on, they'll remember all sorts of things about you. And so you really want to, you're building your reputation um, you know, as, as soon as you start. And I, and I love that you shared a story from your first day of law school, right? <laughs> you will remember those moments. So make sure that you're ready and, and, and that you're prepared. And then also um, that a lot of us make lifelong friends in law school, right? That it doesn't have to be this sort of, you know, three-year slog of, of pain and fear um, that you actually can meet some really, really wonderful people, particularly at Rutgers, I think. So that's yeah. awesome. So once you made it through um, law school, what did you what did you think that you wanted to do with your law degree? This is where my interest in aviation, uh, you know, was still with me. Um, I, I I didn't have any direct path to an aviation practice coming out of law school, and um, and my my parents lived in in Florida. They lived up in the, the northwest part of the state, up in the Panhandle, but. Uh, I became afflicted with the, uh, uh, the, the tropical climate syndrome uh, when I was a teenager. What I mean by that is uh, that we lived uh, in the Western Pacific on the tropical island of Guam for two and a half years when I was, uh, uh, well, from ninth grade through the completion of my, uh, my 11th grade um, in high school. And I noticed that uh, it was kind of neat uh, when the temperature never drops below 70 and never goes above 88. And the only way you have a white Christmas is to go down to the beach, uh, which, which I did do once or twice, you know, in Christmas. 
so I, I kind of had this in the back of my mind. And, and so I hopped in the car and cont- I drove south. Um, uh, this is kind of a, an apocryphal version of this. But anyway, what I'm trying to say is that I interviewed for jobs in Miami. Uh, and, and so, uh, uh, took the Florida bar, uh, became a Florida lawyer and, uh, practiced, uh, in Miami, you know, for a few years, um, nothing in aviation, however, doing a lot of other very interesting stuff. I, I just, just loved, um, the, the, the folks, uh, you know, I worked with, uh, I was in two different firms there. One was a, uh, you know, back in those days, it was the largest uh, firm in Florida. It tells you how much things have changed. It had 77 lawyers in it. That was considered, that wasn't considered, it was the biggest firm in Florida in those days. That's now probably considered a boutique. Uh, but, uh, and then I uh, went over and uh, joined a, a small plaintiff's firm. Uh, and I enjoyed plaintiff's work very much uh, uh, doing that, but but wasn't in aviation. Um, and then through um, uh, my father, um, I had an opportunity to come out and interview with a firm in Los Angeles that did specialize in aviation. Um, and, uh, and in the route to doing that, uh, remember I could not qualify as a professional pilot, but I was able to qualify and get my private pilot's license from the federal aviation uh, administration. It has so many limitations on it. I, I need, I probably need a lawyer to tell me what I can fly and can't fly. You know, I can't fly at night by myself because of my colorblindness and things like that. But, but I proved I could do it. Um, and uh, so got my license and the flu and uh, uh, enough to know about aviation uh, and understand, uh, you know, the difference between a, uh, you know, flap and an ailon kind of thing. But it, it's, um, uh, but the folks in Los Angeles is a, a firm that um, specialized in aviation, uh, maybe an offer, and I came out to Los Angeles. And that was uh, in uh, 80, uh, early 80s, 83, uh, when, when I came out. And then um, uh, opened up my eyes to uh, how interesting aviation can be. Uh, now, I, I like to say uh, a- aviation is a uh, national practice, but it's a small town practice all combined. And, and what I mean by that is because it is a niche kind of practice. Um, the, the people who uh, over the years have you know, practiced exactly what I do, uh, and, and we're heavy into aircraft crash litigation, insurance coverage, aviation matters, things of that nature, um, is it, relatively limited, maybe um, four or 500 people. Um, and a lot of other branches of aviation, but precisely in what I do, it, it's probably four or 500 people nationally. Uh, so, you, you know, we'd get a call on a case and it could be in uh, Iowa, um, it could be in New York City, uh, Georgia, uh, Oregon, um, in, in, in pick, pick your state. Um, and so we're do- having kind of a, uh, we have to cross state lines, get admitted, uh, you know, for the purpose of the case, walk into the courtroom. And this is where the small town practice component of it comes into. So you walk into a courtroom in Portland, Oregon for the first time and you walk in on the case and you see the other lawyers there. And you know them all because they're from Georgia or they're from New York or they're from Philadelphia uh, or, or, you know, and, and so that's the small town nature of the practice. Um, and it's just been a thrill. Uh, you know, I, to, to me, aviation is, is, is very challenging, very complex. It, it's in a substantive area that I just find fascinating. Um, and yet it's uh, had both a national and actually international component too. I kind of should have mentioned I've had cases, you know, outside of the United States and, and, uh, but, um, uh, but you make good friends um, and you come across people. One of the nice things about um, 
uh, about the aviation practice because you come across people time and time again and 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 you know them um, you tend to have a tendency to uh, be old school in the sense that you call someone up and you need an agreement on something and an extension and the other person will say fine uh, you know send send me a note just to confirm it um, and and you have a really high assumption that that uh, oral um, uh, you know, uh, uh, agreement will be honored in actual practice. Well, one of the things a lot of lawyers these days lament, I think, with big city practices, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a town like Los Angeles, uh, you know, where I am now, where there's just so many lawyers uh, and, and so many judges that you can go through a 40, 50 year career uh, and never come across the same lawyer or even the same judge, you know, again. Um, so having that small town component of an aviation practice has, has been very attractive to me and I've enjoyed that very much. Yeah. Um, there, there are so many pieces there that I, that I want to delve into a little bit. Um, so, um, let's go back and then, and then come forward. So you said when you got out of law school that you were a plaintiff's lawyer. And I think a lot of times people hear that and they have no idea sure. what it means when somebody says, Hey, I'm a plaintiff's lawyer. So can you first sort of walk through that a little bit? And then we'll, we'll talk about aviation, which I think is fascinating. <laughs> well, well, as, as a plaintiff's lawyer, um, you represent, uh, the, the claimant, um, uh, and, uh, someone who has suffered some kind of loss or injury, whether it's a bodily injury, a loss of a family member through a death, uh, or if it's a financial loss through a breach of contract or some kind of business uh, uh, infraction, um, and someone has suffered, uh, suffered because of that way. The only, the only thing that, uh, you know, the law can't replace lives, obviously, you can't uh, re- restore a leg and, uh, you know, can't undo post traumatic stress disorder. So the only thing the courts can do is, is, is to try to um, come up with some type of financial compensation for those kinds of injuries. So, so a plaintiff's lawyer represents those individuals who have, have suffered some kind of harm um, and, and, and bring a case to court on their behalf um, and uh, pursue that case in the courtroom um, working it up ultimately for trial, uh, if it, if it gets that far and along the steps to get that far, you have first have to file something called the complaint, uh, which is on behalf of the plaintiff. Uh, then you have to serve that complaint on the people that you accuse of being at fault for what happened and they have an opportunity to answer it. And there's an answer on file. Then once the answer is on file, you have what's called an at issue, uh, case. So we know what the issues are. Then you have to uh, develop facts. Uh, the evidence that uh, explores those issues, and you enter a phase that's called discovery, uh, which can t- mean taking depositions. Uh, you know, actually, you sit down witnesses uh, somewhere and uh, with a court reporter, and you swear them as if they're actually in a trial, uh, and ask questions. And there's cross examination, much as if you would actually be in a courtroom. And so you learn your case, uh, you exchange documents, uh, you exchange sworn statements back and forth. Uh, items called uh, interrogatories, which have uh, um, statements under oath about uh, what the positions and the facts are as known by the other side. And you learn your case um, and you come up, you have a trial date and uh, you, you go to and actually try the case um, and ha- in, in front of a jury, mostly. Uh, plaintiff's lawyers like to have juries uh, as opposed <laughs> to having judges try their case. Although some, some uh, plaintiff's lawyers will actually take issue with that uh, in some instances, because I think statistically it shows that the Judges are just as favorable as juries are yeah. um, uh, in, in some cases, maybe not all mm-hmm. cases, but, but that's mm-hmm. the bias anyway, is to uh, try a case to a jury. Yeah. 
So, you know, being a plaintiff's lawyer is, you know, really different from lots of other practices of law in that you're working with people who have experienced deep loss or trauma or some sort of, you know, catastrophic um, accident. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what it's like to be, and I think this is an aspect of lawyering that folks don't always think about. You're, you're not just, you know, asking people questions and trying to figure out, you know, what the damages are. You're also working with somebody who, you know, is maybe in pain or, you know, is, is, is mourning. And how do you manage that relationship with somebody, which is a professional relationship because you're their lawyer, but they're also someone who's telling you, you know, really painful things that have happened to them. Yeah. Um, th- there is um, often uh, a good deal of uh, armchair therapy associated with it. The, the most important thing is to listen and to empathize. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the reality is that, uh, you know, every loss is different. Uh, even though uh, the lawyer who's sitting behind the desk may have lost someone important to them, uh, it gives them some, that lawyer, some uh, rough idea of what their client may be suffering, but every loss is unique. Um, and to sit and, and, and listen and try to understand and, and get some basic grasp of emotionally what they're going through. Uh, and that's a challenge. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, but, but you have to listen, uh, and, and you ha- have to let, um, the, the person who suffered the loss tell their story, um, and give them time to do it. And, and sometimes the story doesn't come out all at once. Uh, sometimes it may take months, if not a year or so. Uh, a lot of times, um, things happen at a deposition. Um, that you may have sat down with your client and talked about the loss uh, and uh, and you think you understand and have been told everything there is to be told, then you're at a deposition and then because of the pressure of the moment, um, the, the, the person will come out with something that surprises you. Um, and, and that even happens beyond the deposition, but in courtroom, uh, because just of the pressure of, of, of the circumstances, it... Uh, it, it has a tendency to actually uh, bring things to the surface that a lot of people will keep buried. Absolutely. And, you know, I want to I want to ask one more question about um, plaintiff's lawyers, because, um, as I said, you know, I, I teach torts. Um, and so, you know, I, I think a lot about our, our our system of, you know, how, how we deal with accidents and, and, and bad things that happen to people. But I think sometimes plaintiff's lawyers get a really bad rap, right, the, that the sort of, you know, conversation is about people who are just chasing money and, you know, um, um, they're not the kind of lawyers that, that we should like. So, um, which I totally disagree with, but, um, so I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about, you know, how important the plaintiff's bar is, right. And the work that folks do, um, not only for individuals, but the impact that that work can have much more broadly. Yeah. Uh, I have the um, highest respect for plaintiff's lawyers. Um, and, you know, we all know that uh, no profession um, is, is, is perfect. Uh, the, you know, the, there's going to be some bad actors in every, every profession. But my, my experience is that by far and away, the vast majority of plaintiff's lawyers um, are empathetic to their clients, are, are trying to achieve justice for their clients, and uh, do the best that they can on behalf of them. And some of the most Generous people you, you'd ever want to find, or, you know, are plaintiffs' lawyers. Uh, they're committed to justice. Um, they, I, I think, uh, deep down, they're, they, they feel that they're on a mission, trying to make the world a better place. And, and you look back over the last 40 or 50, 60 years, 70 years, uh, you know, the, all the post World War II years, uh, I think that the plaintiffs' bar has had a huge impact 
um, on our culture in terms of defining what is safe, uh, what's mm-hmm. acceptable. Um, we're far uh, safer now. Uh, you, you look at tobacco, for example, just as one example, um, and uh, what the plaintiff's bar has meant um, to, uh, to smoking um, mm-hmm. and, um, and re- reducing the exposure uh, to carcinogens. Uh, and that, that's uh, thanks to the plaintiff's bar, a group of people that were willing to put their lives and their money and years of effort uh, into and uh, in, in carrying this fight on, so 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 you know, I mean, they're not just Don Quixote. They're not mm-hmm. the plaintiff's lawyers aren't just Don Quixote. Uh, they're 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 fighting a, a a real legitimate fight on behalf of just justice for people who uh, otherwise would not have it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of times people don't think about, um, particularly people who are not lawyers who are not a part of the legal system, don't think about the ways in which lawsuits are their own form of regulation, right? I mean, it's sort of saying to people, this is this this industry standard is problematic, you need to change it, or um, and that can be really, um, as you say, very, very broad in terms of its impact. So um, maybe we should be a little nicer to plaintiff's lawyers than we well, are. I, 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 I'll, I'll, I'll throw my vote in for that, yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so let's talk about aviation. So first of all, it's such a great thing to be somebody who can combine your professional life with something that's in- incredibly interesting and important to you um, in your in your personal life. So I think that's really fun. Um, but also, you know, I think aviation law is also this space where if you if you throw that out, people aren't quite sure um, what it means and what are all the different ways in which you might have to practice if you have an aviation law practice. So can you walk us through that a little bit? I mean, obviously, as you, you know, it's when planes crash, obviously, sure. there, you know, we all hear about the litigation there. But what are some of the other things that happen in an aviation law practice? Oh, oh sure. Uh, well, well there's just so much. And, uh, you know, you look at, um, uh, uh, you know, aviation. Um, it's uh, the, the nice thing about the subject matter of aviation is that it cross pollinates a broad field. Um, and when you, when you look at civil procedure issues, um, uh, aviation typically, uh, you look in the case books, uh, and and typically the most complex civil procedure cases you read about are aviation cases. Uh, so you know you, the interplay between federal and state rights, uh, which uh, you know the, the the trigger word there is uh, is to to a large extent is preemption, uh, because uh, you know the U.S. Constitution has a supremacy clause, so laws passed by Congress are supposed to be supreme. They will. Trump, so to speak, you know, any uh, countervailing state laws, and that's a preemption analysis. So th- there's there's a lot of uh, uh, you, you might look at aviation as kind of like a uh, a course in uh, geology. There, there, there's a lot of tectonic plate shifts, uh, you know, and and uh, so you have a tremendous amount of tension between state and federal rights in aviation. Uh, constantly, there's fights over if there is a remedy. Does it provide by is it provided by federal or is it provided by state law? Or if it's provided by state law, does a federal law take it away or limit it or increase it? Um, you, you know, those, those, those types of things. Uh, so many of the cases can be in, you know, federal court or state court. Uh, there's this whole process about removal um, that, uh, you know, most plaintiff's lawyers, when it comes to an aviation case, would prefer to be in state court. There's one or two exceptions where I think plaintiff's lawyers believe that, um, you know, federal court might be more favorable forum for them. But for the most part, plaintiff's lawyers prefer to be in a state uh, forum on the assumption that um, um, ultimately the uh, awards are more often uh, 
given to the plaintiffs in, in a state environment, and then the awards themselves are a little bit higher. That's the bias anyway. Uh, but on the, to contrary to that, the defense lawyers uh, want to be in federal court as much as they can. So there's this process if there's potentially if there's potentially a federal jurisdiction, uh, you know, the defense lawyers will look at a case and and will remove it from state court to federal court. And then you get into fight over whether or not the case should be remanded back to state court or not. And those those have always been some very uh, you know interesting uh, you know interesting battles. Um, but uh, you know when you when you look at uh, you know just give you an example. Uh, on, uh, you know, one, one case, uh, how complex it can be. Um, I was, uh, there, there was a crash, uh, of, of a, uh, six engine or six person aircraft, uh, outside of uh, Sydney, Australia. Uh, they were actually on a search and rescue mission to look for some friends who had disappeared flying another airplane west of Sydney the day before. Um, this aircraft that was on a search and rescue, uh, suffered an engine failure and had to go into the mountains um, and ended up, uh, unfortunately, four of the six people on board died from the crash and the two people in the back survived, but were you know seriously harmed. Uh, and they called me in Los Angeles because the airplane was made in the United States and the engine was made in uh, Mobile, Alabama. Um, so we had, so we had jurisdiction, we filed several suits because we weren't, we weren't sure which court would retain the case. So I filed a lawsuit in Los Angeles um, where one of the defendants was located, but then also filed it in Alabama, Mobile, Alabama, where the, one of the other defendants was located and uh, uh, became associated with a law firm uh, that since some of the lawyers there became some of my best friends and still are even to this day. Uh, but we ended up uh, deciding to go forward and the court in Mobile, Alabama kept the case uh, but, uh, and we move forward, we spent several months in Australia taking depositions and, you know, it's, it's a different process down there. You have to get permission from the court to do it. You just can't notice them and you have to be supervised by a judge while you're taking the depositions. And, uh, it, it was, uh, and we had the depositions didn't go on just for two months. They were double track. We were, uh, so, so we, so we probably had three months of testimony. Then our judge and, uh, uh, state court in Mobile told us we had uh, two weeks to try the case, and we all kind of uh, fell off our chairs, had clutching our chest, having a heart attack. So, how are we going to get six weeks or two months of testimony down to two weeks? Uh, but there's a thing called choice of law in these cases, and and uh, you know it's, it's it's unusual in an aviation case for there not to be a choice of law issue. You know these airplanes have a tendency to leave the ground and they go at other places, mm-hmm. and and so you might have multiple states involved. And you're not sure where the lawsuit is going to be filed. Uh, so you have to decide, well, what law is going to apply? Now, uh, it could be a state of California, state of Florida, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, uh, you know, all, all, or federal law versus state law. Uh, or in this particular case that I'm talking about, this accident occurred in New South Wales. Now, uh, Alabama at, at this time had this choice of law rule. Uh, that t- it's called Lex Loci, which means you apply the law of the place of where the accident happened. So the accident happened in New South Wales, Australia. That meant Alabama uh, was going to apply the law of New South Wales. So how, do, how does the court in Alabama know what the law of New South Wales was? So, so we, we, we actually had a, a trial just on choice of law. Uh, and we brought all these retired judges and barristers you know, from the Queen bench up from Sydney. And so we had a full day of, uh, of testimony about what the law was. And, and but, but, I, but I laugh about this because it's a you know, clash of cultures because we're – you know, I, I noticed that uh, 
as the day was wearing on, uh, because every now and then I'd look behind my shoulder, people would be coming, entering the courtroom. And I noticed that the Australians, every time they were coming in, they were bowing. Hmm. And every time they were leaving, they'd turn around and they'd bow before they leave. And so finally we had a break. I said, what are you guys doing? I says, well, we're paying our respects to the, to the, to the court. I said, guys, these are the colonies, okay? I said, we, we don't do that. You know, we don't even wear wigs, you know? The lawyers don't wear robes. And, and, and you have to realize our, you know, our judge, you know, and we'd been down in, uh, you know, in one of the courtrooms in Sydney, and, uh, you know, it's, a, it's, it's, it, it's full of pageantry and, uh, you know, the, the flowing robes and the uh, wigs and the scarlet robes and the big staffs and the tenations, you know, and, and all this sort of stuff. And it's all very solemn and impressive. And by contrast, our judge in Alabama, that no one would announce his entrance. <laughs> the door would just open from the side and he'd come in, his robe would be open at the front. He had a coffee cup. He'd walk up, <laughs> sit down, put a foot on the bench and say, what's on the docket today, boys? All right. It was an interesting culture contrast. Uh, but yeah. we all spoke English for the most part. <laughs> Uh, and, and, and we all shared a common heritage, uh, you know, uh, of, of, of the common law with a lot of variations on it. But, but we, we spent the whole day just trying the law. And uh, we ultimately uh, held a mediation on that case. Uh, but it, the mediation was held in Los Angeles. And so we, uh, wow. uh, we, we successfully settled the case, uh, and, uh, the, um, which meant that we never had to answer the question of how do we get two months of uh, testimony into a two-week trial. So I, I'm glad right. we never had to test that. <laughs> so, so an accident in Australia, a lawsuit filed in Alabama, right. and then a mediation in California. That's right. Yeah. All in one case. Yeah. 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 So I, I feel like after we're done today, I'm going to have to um, reach out to all my civil procedure colleagues and say, you can have your students listen to the Roger Clark podcast, and then they'll re they'll know how important civil procedure is, right? I mean, that's a class I think in the first year that students often struggle with yeah. because it's you know it's not intuitive; it's just sort of this bunch of rules. And yet, civil procedure is is where it's at. I mean, it makes or breaks a case in so many in so many ways. It, it's um, you know having um, like I said, grown up uh, you know uh, uh, on military bases. Um, you know, I was taught uh, by my father, who, who you know, was a career uh, Air Force pilot, uh, that, uh, you know, the, the, the word is mightier than the sword. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think there's a time component uh, to that, I mean, humorously, because if I have a book in my hand, I'm facing somebody with a sword in their hand, I'm not going to put my money on the guy with the book. <laughs> but, 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 but I, get, I get the point. Because th those, those folks who you know have served in the military uh, protect us, so that those of us who live by the word um, can implement the word, um, and so it's it, and civil procedure is at the core of that. Uh, and, and some of the most thrilling moments I've had in my career is is, is walking into a courtroom um, where. The issue is, do we have jurisdiction over someone 12,000 miles away on something that happened in a foreign country um, and, and, and dealing with, uh, with, with the issues? Can, we, can this court here in Los Angeles uh, rightfully assert jurisdiction over that person, can proceed with the case, uh, and if uh, make a determination under the law and the facts as to whether an award is appropriate or not, um, and then can it be enforced? It, it, it's a thrilling thing to me um, to, to see justice in that way work. Uh, and 
uh, as I said, uh, it's just some of the most thrilling moments in my career to see how that can happen and civil procedures at the core of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the one of the ways that I think I first met you was um, when I was vice dean and you were teaching and have been teaching for us um, as an adjunct at the law school for many, many years. Um, and I think that the, the, the initial story that I heard was, oh, we have this adjunct um, who flies himself here to teach for our students, to teach aviation law for our students. And I thought, this, this is a man I want to meet. That sounds really fascinating. Um, but I do want to talk about the aviation law course because over the last several years, I know that you've sort of turned it into this you know, more skills-based course where you're sort of having the students um, work through a case. Can you describe that a little bit? Because I think it's, I think it just seems like so much fun. Yeah. You know, and, and, I, and I have fun teaching it. Um, and and it's uh, uh, the last couple of years, um, I, I based the course on the, the real life 737, uh, the Boeing 737 MAX litigation, primarily the crash in Ethiopia. Um, mm. And those lawsuits out of that crash were filed in federal court uh, in the Northern District of Illinois. Now, you, you know, people may say, well, this is a crash in Ethiopia. Why are lawsuits being filed uh, in Chicago? Uh, and the reason they're filed in Chicago is because that's where Boeing is headquartered. So there's jurisdiction, you know, over over Boeing, um, and there can be arguments after as, as well about whether or not the court should keep the cases because there may be a more appropriate place for them to be tried and that kind of thing. But uh, uh, but but I based the course uh, on, on that real life incident, and then a generous sprinkling of hypothetical facts, you know, to, to change the issues and change the, the arguments that we're, we're making. Um, and so uh, we'll, we'll, we'll typically, uh, this year, uh, we met, uh, I think, every two weeks for, you know, two-week session. Uh, we actually met on the weekends, which is really uh, nice because there's no other distractions and, and uh, uh, a, lot, a lot of folks that uh, may have a hard time making a, you know, nighttime class on a Tuesday or Wednesday night or daytime class do have the time on a a Saturday and Sunday. And I really appreciate the fact that they gave up their football time. You know, they could be watching the Eagles, uh, you know, they're with me instead. Watching the Eagles lose. Yeah. (laughs) Springs eternal. (laughs) So, so, uh, but we, uh, so what we did, you know, we'll we'll have different subject matters and um, you know, if you had a pie chart, you know, the question is what is aviation law? Uh, And a lot of things get slung into that pie chart. Um, you know, there, there's international law. This is coming back to Roger S. Clark that we were talking about earlier. Um, uh, you know, you, you take the, uh, uh, air, the the Ethiopian air disaster. Uh, it was a it was a flight from one country to another, uh, and that triggers the international law component of aviation, which is called the Montreal Treaty, which has all sorts of different issues associated with it. Uh, so, so we study international law. Um, you know, how, how, how do you interpret a treaty? Um, you know, and, and, and what sources do you have uh, to interpret that treaty? And then how do you implement the treaty? Um, uh, and, and so, uh, so we're dealing with that. And, and because we're coming back to civil procedure, uh, you know, you have hundreds of people, hundreds of different claims. Uh, it is all very complex, uh, you know, civil procedure processes uh, that, that come into play um, when, you, when you have a mass uh, tort a lawsuit like that, multiple people. So, so it, it's, and, and most of these complex civil procedure uh, processes have been developed because of aviation matters over the years, uh, mm. you know, and, and, and so 
you, you have to manage the cases. Then you have the interplay between what happened in the uh, government and uh, you have administrative law because a lot of these matters can work their way up through the administrative agencies before they get to the court. And you have issues of what kind of deference uh, the courts need to give, if any, you know, to the federal agencies and how they interpret the laws and the rules and the regulations and things of that nature. And then, uh, as I said earlier, uh, you know, you look at this tension between, well, we have this case in Ethiopia, uh, the crash in Ethiopia, uh, but you have people from all over the world that were on that airplane. Uh, so you have this, uh, you know, poor judge in, in Chicago uh, say, well, uh, what, first of all, what's law and liability? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, so I got to figure out what, what is the law to be applied to determine if there's fault here. But then after that, what, what are the laws on damages? Uh, I mean, should someone from um, uh, Kenya, um, you know, have the same uh, law on damages applied to that person's case as, say, someone from the state of New York? Uh, so you have a choice of law on damages. So you can have multiple choice of law issues arising in the, in the same case. So, so in this this course, uh, you know, we teach these different subject matters, but then uh, we would uh, they would have assignments, uh, and and so uh, the, typically the in the two day sequence, uh, we'd study the substance day one, half of the uh, uh, day two, but then they would have assignments where they'd have to argue uh, different. Uh, motions. Uh, everybody's a lawyer in my classroom. There's no law. Everybody's a lawyer. Uh, so, so they get up and, and, and they argue uh, for proposition or a motion and in opposition to it. And we, we did that. And as we went on and we went on, um, we, uh, we we first did it as, as a group. We had three or four people on a team just so everybody could get their feet wet. And then the team would get reduced to two. And by the time at the very end, it was a single lawyer arguing a single motion and someone as a single individual would be in opposition to that. And we would go into the, you know, Rutgers has a beautiful moot courtroom uh, and, and uh, you know, real court houses, many real court houses across the country would, would, would die for this. Moot <laughs> uh, but, so we, we, we go in on the, on the final day and we pull, spend the full final day arguing. This is where we really, where the uh, rubber meets the road because now everybody has their feet wet um, they understand how the process is. Uh, so everybody is writing, submitting their papers in advance, exchanging their papers, uh, just like you would in a real court practice. Uh, and, and they come ready for bear, right? And, and, and they're ready to argue. Uh, and and I'm, every year I'm just so impressed with the quality of, of the arguments. And, and, and they're just, just so much talent. Uh, and and th- this year was just no different. And, and folks were making arguments and coming up with issues that uh, I, I just found thrilling things that uh, I hadn't thought. I, I, I always learn from this. Mm-hmm. I almost feel like uh, I'm cheating because I'm supposed to be the professor, but actually I'm learning, you know, and, and, but I, I learned from my students. Uh, and, and we went through this whole process and we wear the robes. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and so, uh, you know, so, so I sit there in the robes. So they have the experience of being in a courtroom environment with a judge and, and they get challenged. They, they, there's no free pass on this. Uh, so, so just like a real lawyer, you know, if, if the real lawyer is going to go off, uh, off, uh, on, on some kind of tangent, uh, you know, they're going to be challenged. And, uh, what's your basis to make that claim? Is that the law? Is that the fact? Uh, and so they get pressed on it, just like you would in real life. And then then I have the, the students cycle up because I like them to put the robe on uh, for at least one cycle to, to sit with me because what a difference a point of view makes. So suddenly you're looking at it from the perspective of the judge and, and what that means for them. The next time they argue, they'll have the experience of what 
uh, you know, courtroom looks like from the perspective of the person sitting on the bench. And that may, in fact, uh, affect and, and, and improve the quality of their argument the next time around. So we, we have a lot of fun doing it. Um, and, and I think that uh, the idea is that by the time the course is over, um, the students uh, understand what it means to argue. And, and you know, we, we all, lawyers are famous for talking. Um, but, but the reality is that, uh, 90% of our time is writing, uh, you know, not, not talking. Uh, and, and so it's important to focus, uh, and, and make the impression that it's important to write well, uh, and, and write well. And then once you actually get into the courtroom, you know, you know, speak well, uh, also. So, and, and that's part of the process of trying to learn these, these skills. And it's not just being in the courtroom as a lawyer. These are things that serve you in life everywhere. Uh, you know, so the next uh, community event you go to, you, you want to, you know, lawyers are expected to be leaders. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so, I mean, it's by virtue of having that law degree. People look to, oh, I, I know so-and-so who lives down the block. They're a lawyer. I think they should take the lead at the next community meeting. And, and they expect you to get up and make a presentation. So these are skills that apply all across the board, whether it's in the community center or whether it's in the boardroom or office or the courtroom. So Yeah. And our, I mean, our stu- the, the the classes that are taught by our adjuncts, you know, particularly the skills classes, I think those are some of the classes, along with the clinics, that students tend to love the most, right? Because it really lets you, you know, try on what it means to be a lawyer and all of these sort of different facets. And it's it's a it's a really nice way for people to start to feel, to start to build their professional identity, which I think is is really terrific. But the other thing that I want to talk about, because I know that we, I, I've taken a lot of your time, I don't want to take all, all day, but I, um, I do want to talk about um, mediation because on one hand, um, you know, trials are really exciting and the idea of standing up in front of the judge and, you know, pitching to the jury and all of this good stuff. Um, but a lot of cases don't go to trial, right? Um, and the idea of having alternative ways you know, ADR, alternative dispute resolution, um, is certainly a lot more popular now than it was um, in the past. And you and you have a mediation practice. Yes. So could you talk about, um, certainly as somebody who's had both experiences, you know, how is, how is mediation different? And why, if you believe this to be true, why is mediation um, really such a critical part of our, of our legal system now? The, um, you know, cases of... Um uh, you know, I've been practicing since '78, uh, and and so so when I started practicing, um, mediation w- w- was not the name of the game. Um, and, and in fact, I think that the first uh, uh, court implemented mediation program was in the Pacific Northwest, Oregon or Washington, about that time. And and so mediation started to creep into the parlance generally. You know, in the in the '80s. And uh, most lawyers were suspicious of it. Um, and because you don't want to go to a mediation and spill the beans. Because I've, I've, mm. I've got that ace, you know, in my pocket. I don't want them to know about that ace in my pocket. I'm keeping that for trial. And, and, and you know, of course, these, these are people who have been, you know, we're talking about 1980. These are people who have been practicing law since World War II. Uh, and um, so, so it was a trial mindset. Now, and, and, and if you if you go back historically, um, you know, you go back to Abraham Lincoln. Uh, I think that the standard rule is that uh, nine out of 10 cases that were filed, we're talking about civil cases uh, that were filed in the days of the uh, 1830s and 1840s and 1850s, 80 or 90 percent of those would go to trial. 
Um, and then I think by 1930s or so, that number was down to about 50%. When I started practicing in the late 70s, the general rule was one out of 10 goes to trial. Uh, now it, it's, it's less. It, it may, may be something like one out of 100. And, and part of what's going on is, is that these the cases generally um, have become more um, fact-intensive, paper-intensive, um, it, it, it's harder to get these cases tried because you go back 40 years ago, uh, you know, you, you'd, you'd see one of the old, uh, old, uh, war horses, you know, go down and try a case, had a folder that was, uh, you know, that was barely, uh, you know, a few millimeters thick and said, I got my three documents. That's all I need on this case. I got the three key documents. Right. And, and a lot of lawyers would say any case can be boiled down to three documents. Right. And, and I haven't heard anybody say that in a few years, uh, but 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 the point is is that it's gotten a lot more paper intensive, a lot more fact intensive, uh, and it's and and so uh, and the judges are, are pressed for time because their caseload has increased. Um, the there's I, I think the number of judges per capita um, ha, has not increased with you know what it was maybe 40, 50 years ago. That's my impression. It's not anything I've read recently. But 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 yet so the caseloads on the on the courts have gone up. They don't have as much time to spend on on cases, so so the courts now rely heavily on 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 the, the mediation process um, to to get the cases resolved. Um, and I, what I've noticed is is that there's some lawyers who now traditionally trial lawyers, but also have become very good mediator lawyers, are good at mediation because the mindset now is where you'd once prepare a case for trial, and a mediation was a distraction in advance of that where now people generally prepare a case for mediation. Um, mm. And if it doesn't get resolved, then they do go on to trial. Uh, so it is a, a, a different mindset. Um, and people will come uh, with, with mediation. And, and now the bias in mediation, uh, and now I'm speaking as a mediator, I, I said, if you want a case settled, share everything with me. Uh, and, mm. and you don't, don't hold that ace in your pocket. Uh, and, and so when you, when you look at a matter, um, People, you know, it's a mixed mediation is a mixed motive process. Uh, generally, generally, both sides want to settle, uh, but yet they don't want, they can't agree on a number. So, 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 so there's a mutual desire to settle. Uh, there's distance on where the number is, uh, and the mediator's job is is to try to, uh, of course, get the parties together to a point where um, both parties probably want to go, but neither wants to be the first to get there. Uh, and, 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 and so, my, you know, I've been doing this long enough now um, where, where uh, you know, I understand the, the strengths and weaknesses in cases. And so this is by virtue of my, my experience as a practicing trialer comes in into mediation, particular in aviation cases and things like that, uh, where I can understand where the strengths and weaknesses are of someone's case uh, and help them work through that and help them to, uh, uh, you know, appraise the case and evaluate it. Uh, and, and help to get them to a place uh, where, where the case can settle. Because typically both sides start on the, uh, somebody's going to be uh, probably outrageously high and someone's going to be outrageously low. Uh, and, and you need to draw, get to both of them within what's called a zone of reasonableness. Uh, and once you get both sides within a zone of reasonableness, kind of a, a, you know, it becomes gravitational. The parties have a tendency to, to come together. Um, but, but they just, as I said, they don't, neither wants to be the first one to get there. So part of the mediator's job is to help them get there, uh, at the same time. Uh, mm -hmm. so I, I enjoy mediation. Um, 
it's a challenge. Uh, there's a lot of satisfaction uh, for, for me um, to uh, sit down on a complex case with a lot of uh, challenges to it and help the parties work through their problems uh, and, and, and to, to get a resolution. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it, and, and sometimes I have to remind myself I'm not an advocate uh, because, you know, I, I've got a mediation coming up at the very beginning next week on, on, on an interesting matter. But, I, you know, I look at a, you know, when I read the briefs, I'll read one brief and I start, I know I realize I'm thinking as an advocate, you know, as if I wrote that brief. And I said, wait a second, uh, just, just just cool down here. Now that I read the other brief and then I flip on the other side and then I need to get in the right mindset um, because I'm not an advocate. Uh, I'm a facilitator uh, that uh, is, is there to try to help the parties you know, you know, resolve the case. Uh, and so, um, give the case resolved. I, I mediate for the federal court, um, and, and have done that for a number of years now. Um, and, uh, that, that's, uh, whenever we, you know, run across and talk to the judges, they're always happy to see us because they give us a pat in the back and say, we want you guys to settle these cases. <laughs> so, so, so Get them off my docket. They're, they're just busy. They're, they're, they're yeah. just busy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Roger, thank you so much. I mean, this was just an absolute pleasure. Um, to t- it's always a pleasure to talk to you, but, um, you know, it, it's great to just sort of, you know, hear your journey and, and um, you know, and, and hear your perspective as somebody who's been practicing law for, you know, for a really long time and who has sort of watched some of the shifts that have happened um, in our legal system, hopefully mostly for good. Um, so thank you again. Thank you so much for your time. And, and I look forward to when we can, you know, grab dinner again. Thank you, Kim. It's been a pleasure. And uh, I will always enjoy talking to you. And uh, uh, kudos to you and uh, all the faculty and staff at uh, Rutgers Law School. It's a, it's, it's a wonderful place. Can't say enough about it. And, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, I, not only did I make great friends, uh, but I learned how to think uh, uh, and got a tremendous education. And the return on my uh, investment at Rutgers is uh, just off the charts. You know, it's, uh, I, I doubt that Bill Gates has had a better return on investment uh, than, uh, than what I got from my education at, uh, at Rutgers. So uh, thanks for all that you guys do. The Power of Attorney is produced by Rutgers Law School. With two locations, minutes from Philadelphia and New York City, Rutgers Law offers the prestige and reputation of a large, nationally known university with a personal small campus experience. Learn more by visiting law.rutgers.edu.